Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, you know what we do here at Intentional Conversations podcast. We take a moment to provide a formal introduction of our guest co-hosts. I like to always make sure that our audience is aware of the credentials, the accolades in which our guest co-hosts show up to these conversations. And so I want to do the same for our guest co-host today, Claudia T. Miller. Claudia Miller is a sought-after Latina career coach, and she's helped her clients land fulfilling jobs in less than 90 days, all while getting on an average of a 54% salary increase. That's about 30 to 140K, y'all. She also partners with companies and organizations in identifying rising stars within their organizations and providing strategic insights and support in developing leadership and talent pipeline with a focus on women and women of color. Due to her efforts, she's worked with top Fortune 500 clients and has partnered with World Business. Due to her client success, she's been featured multiple times in Forbes, MSNBC, Thrive Global, and Business Insider, which has put her in the top global list of top innovative career coaches. You all know what to do here on Attentional Conversations. I want you to go to the chat, find whatever words are coming up for you that could make our guest co-host Claudia feel welcome, get those reaction points, but we want to make sure that she knows that we are so grateful that she has um, decided to be a part of today's conversation. So I'm going to spotlight her just so I can bring her into the conversation. But um, I hope you all are just as excited as I am today to have Claudia sharing with us. And so Claudia, one of the first things we like to do after the welcome, after reading of the bio, is to get our guest co-host to, in their own way, share with us how they want to greet this audience. And specifically, we want you to tell us at least maybe one to two things that we would not know about you from reading your bio or from even reading all of your, your profile information in LinkedIn. So what can you share with us today? Well, first, hi, welcome, bienvenidos. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and ella. And I'm so excited to be here. By the way, I'm gonna pre-order your book. Um, I, I look forward to uh, reading it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, but I just wanted to come here again uh, to thank you for having me here. And I look forward to the great discussion we're going to be having today uh, where it comes around women, women in leadership, sound negotiation. We're going to really dive into some really great topics. So I look forward to this conversation overall. And to answer your question, what people won't know about me if you know that they can't find on my profile is that, uh, well, I was born in Guatemala and I'm the first one in my family to graduate from high school. Um, I now hold a master's degree, so, you know, I, I definitely had to do it on my own, but I'm very excited and happy to be able to be privileged to have that um, opportunity. And for some of you may not know this, I have a really rare blood illness that has no cure, but I'm very grateful for it just because it's provided me with a lot of opportunities because of it. And it's definitely taught me resilience and determination, which I get to benefit from now, especially as an adult. That is, that is so awesome. Thank you so much for vulnerably sharing transparently with this audience. Um, you know, and I think that sometimes when we're able to lean in and to share those things, that helps us to get better perspective as to maybe the lens in which we show up to these types of conversations. And so we're really grateful to have you here today, Claudia. So in your bio, of course, I shared with the audience that um, leadership and talent pipeline is something that's really important to you and your work. So what is this, why is this a key DEI initiative and how can organizations successfully support a program's growth and continuation? Well, overall it's important just because we need to have more women in leadership roles. It's yes. data has shown that women are earning more degrees than men and we're outperforming them in college. So if we're having all this education, we're doing great. Why are we not reflected into leadership roles? And of course, it's always, it's, it's the right thing to do. And we can talk about this day in, day out. But what I always like to lead with is it's the right thing to do. And it's also great for business. When we have more women in leadership roles, companies tend to be more profitable. They tend to build and create more um, different patents. There's more innovation going around. And actually, it showed that if they were to have more women in leadership roles, it would add an additional $28 trillion to the market. 
So there are many reasons why we need to have more senior leadership, more women in senior leadership roles. But why it's important to me is because we're not being in those rooms. Um, according to McKinsey and women in the workplace, for every 100 men that get promoted, there's around 86 women that get promoted. And when it comes to women of color, it's around 82 women get promoted at the level. And there comes a huge drop when it comes to women in senior leadership roles and specifically a 75% drop. Yeah, I love that you're so data-driven. So that's something that's really important to us at NWC as well. It's like, bring the facts. We can talk about our opinions all day long, but let's bring the stats, bring the facts. It's hard to argue with facts. And so I love that you are educating us um, with some of the, the data that you are sharing. And so it is it's really jarring to hear when you add these statistics to the conversation. So I think it certainly is, is helping us to get a, a, a clear understanding of why the urgency and the importance of such a topic. So from your vantage point, Claudia, how do you believe we can move more women into leadership roles? I believe it has to be a two-part effort, one from the company side, but also from the person and individual side. We know overall that currently the system we have in place isn't always there to help us succeed. It is not there to help us get paid equally. It is not there to provide us the same opportunities. So my belief is always we have to take ownership of our careers. You have to be very intentional. You have to invest in yourself. You have to negotiate. We know we're not paying fairly or at least fair market rates. So you do need to put yourself out of that comfort zone and work on and ask for that increase because we deserve it. We're doing the work. We might as well get paid for it. So that's more of the accountability and the ownership that comes from us as individuals because my belief is if you don't promote me, I'll go ahead and promote myself. If I have to go somewhere else, I would do that because I have a career plan and I need to continue advancing and I cannot depend on my company to always be there for, for that. Yeah. So, and in the other aspect, I also believe that companies should also be developing and cultivating a, you know, a very great company or a culture of building that pipeline, investing in their talent and making sure that they have a diverse leadership. Because again, as I mentioned, when we have diverse leadership, it creates a lot of innovation, profitability for the business. It, um, it reduces risks for the company's lawsuits. And mm -hmm. one thing I found very important when I looked at the data is it's when we have at least 30% in women in leadership, that's when companies start seeing the benefit. Not five, mm -hmm. not 10, or we have this one or two, you know, person of color or someone that classifies in DEI in this position and we're all set. No, it needs to be 30% in order to see the benefits. And that's when um, they start seeing disproportionate results. It can increase over profitability by seven to 30%, but it's only when we do it the right way. And there's a good amount of diversity because that's where a lot of ideas, innovations come about. I love that. You said so much that I want to take a moment to unpack a little bit of it. The first thing is, is that again, you're, you're dropping some stats that are really jarring, but they're really important. So I love the 30% that you brought to the conversation because I do believe, and I see this, there are many organizations that are of the persuasion, not just from women perspective, but also from like different, you know, races, ethnicities to say, okay, we have X number. So now we have arrived. Now we have done our due diligence. We are good to go. We can stop placing all this emphasis right here. And so what you're saying is that the minimum is 30% before you start to see some difference. But if you really want to drive that home and optimize the full benefit, you don't just stop there. And I just think that's worth amplifying. So I wanted to bring that to the conversation. The other thing is you've talked a lot about the both and, you know, there's certainly a level of responsibility on the individual, but there is equally important a level of responsibility. And sometimes I would even say maybe more so of from a leadership opportunity perspective on the organization's end to make sure that the systems and the climate and the culture is set up to where it is easy for when people, especially women, are trying to create, um, you know, their career trajectory as one where they are being properly compensated and, and valued for what they bring to the organization. And so it's a two-way street. And I, I love that you are certainly emphasizing the both and there. It goes back to even what you said, Claudia, about it. there's a business imperative, but there's also a moral imperative. And sometimes I think that we can overemphasize one without bringing the other into it. And they both are really important. And so thank you. Thank you for dropping some, some gems today as we're digging into this topic.
So we talked about the fact that, you know, we need to help move women into more leadership roles. And so how can companies empower their women employees? What are some unique strategies that you've seen? Well, one of the things that I've seen, at least some of the things that um, a lot of HR people are dealing with right now, um, another data, like I said, I'm very data-driven. Every day, there's around 1,000 people retiring from, every day, there's 1,000 people retiring. And they can't even have, they don't have a leadership talent pipeline to even fill those roles. Mm-hmm. And my question to them is, why? Why do you have a problem filling the leadership roles? Because clearly you have people in the workforce. So a good way to really empower and move more women to women leadership roles is to have almost a program or a leadership talent pipeline where women are being identified for their work. And it is not even saying, well, because we need to do the right thing, we you know, need to lower our criteria because that is far from the truth. Women are equally competent. They're delivering the results. They are very uh, prepared for it. They just need more of that sponsorship. They need that mentorship and really creating that talent pipeline so that way they can continue to advance in their careers. There shouldn't be really, it should be very few reasons, but most of it, companies, when I look at them trying to hire externally, I'm asking why. Why are you hiring externally when you have talent? And I even look at companies where they're hiring for manager, director, senior director roles. And I quickly look on LinkedIn and look up just, you know, well, who's, if you're hiring for a director, let me see how many senior managers do you have? And I can clearly find that on LinkedIn and I see a lot of great talent in there, specifically women and women of color. Why are they not being primed for these positions? Why haven't you been grooming them in order to move them up? And one of the, and you kind of touched on this where it shouldn't just be like, hey, we have, we need X amount of people, you know, women or women of color to be in these roles. So that way we're in good metrics. It it should be at every leadership level. It should be at Mm -hmm. entry level, supervisor level, manager, director, senior director. There should be a data around it, not just overall as a company, because as some of us may know, when it comes to diversity and especially, you know, persons of color, usually at the bottom. We're usually the entry level. We're usually at the beginner level. So they're taking them into account as we met the metric, but they're not allowing them to be able to move and advance in their careers when they're actually very qualified for these roles. Yeah. And I'll add to the list. You know, you said at all levels, I'll even say the boardroom, because, you know, that also is a big topic of discussion. And um, I feel like we are not making um, the progress that we should in terms of, you know, women and and people of color being able to um, make their way into the boardroom, which is where often a lot of the decisions are being made that governs how organizations are ran. And so um, I'm loving I'm loving this discussion. So if I were to paraphrase a little bit of what you said, it really is about the intentionality around the career pathing for these women to make sure that there is great level of consideration that they're being equipped for that upward mobility. So um, I'm curious as to who have you seen, not necessarily by name, but maybe more by the, the, the practices and the strategies, who have you seen do this real successfully? And what about their approach um, allows them to be a separator whereby women are able to thrive and, and to really reach um, the upper echelon of these organizations? Where I've seen the biggest success is through um, metrics and systems. I believe systems dictate behavior. So if Mm -hmm. you want to change behavior, it needs to be start at the root, which is systems or metrics. And companies that have done this very well is they've incorporated a lot of these metrics as part of their leadership and business goals for the year. And it's not just 30% for the entire company. It's this is what it needs to look like and have a breakdown. Here's the reason why. And I'm going to be holding all of levels of leadership accountable for this. And it is tied to your compensation and your performance. When you tie anything to person's compensation, people are quick to change. So if we want change, again, we need to have accountability. And when we connect that to their performance metrics, you'll start seeing change of behavior. Because we, I mean, at least I personally have been in those situations where they're like, oh, you know, this person is always going to do this way. You know how they are. And they're not following those practices. But again, that's because they don't have any accountability. They have no tie to it. Once we connect the dots for them, there's going to be a change. So we need to incorporate companies that have been doing that. And what this looks like is, you know, when you have a job posting, you know, on average, 
every manager at every level needs to have at least a 30, 40% diverse group of, you know, employees, 30 mm-hmm. to 40%. And if not, how are they going to get there? And even working with HR, where are you doing a lot of the job postings? What kind of verbiage are we using? Are we using verbiage that's more male driven? Like, you know, we're looking for the roll up your sleeves, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, hustle culture or are we being more, you know, and, and is that changing the output? It's just how we're communicating it. Yeah. You know, are we going to universities like HBCUs to try to check talent? Are we going to associations meant for like women in sales or women of color in sales to attract more of that sales um, employees? Where is that? Where are we trying to get the talent? How are we attracting them? And then how can we help them stay and feel included within the workplace and also be set up for success? And the companies that start with, again, the metrics, the data, and it's connected to accountability, that's when we start seeing changes. And I've even seen companies where they'll say, you need to have at least 50% of candidates be women before you even start interviewing. If you don't have this, then you cannot even get access to these resumes. And even to take a step further, it should be, well, sorry, I can't give you any resumes for this job person because we don't have 50%, you know, at least women candidates. Then another way you could take it to the next step is, well, we are invested, we have partnerships, we have a talent pipeline that we can easily get to that 50% so that we can get this position filled immediately. So again, to me is when metrics are tied and systems are tied to this, that's when we start seeing rapid change and we start becoming resourceful as opposed to there's not enough candidates applying. Well, the question is, why aren't they? What can we do to help them and be out there and be more inclusive and be able to tap into this other marketplace? You just said a mouthful and it was a mouthful of just gem dropping, you know, point after point after point. I totally agree with you, you know, where... We um, have metrics and we measure things, and of course they get done, but we can't stop there. Where also you hold people accountable, they deliver. The two work in hand. And so I love the fact that it's not just about the behaviors, but it's also about the systems in which these behaviors can thrive in order for us to see some type of real change. And again, another great stat, you said 30 to 40% of that um, applicant pool, um, it needs to make sure that it's um, inclusive of underrepresented, I like to say underestimated um, talent, so that um, you really can um, have opportunity to change the makeup of an organization. You know, we often say at NWC that you hire the best person for the job, hands down, but where organizations really fall short is in their lack of rigor and due diligence to create diverse applicant pools upon which to select from. So I love, Claudia, that you brought that to the conversation. So I want to shift a little bit and go back to the individual responsibilities, because, yes, there are some things that we can do, you know, as professionals, just in general, um, to help set ourselves up for success, right? If the system is willing for us to be successful, I do want to make sure I amplify that. But I hear often that part of the challenge for women is that we have a hard time advocating for ourselves. We have a hard time of really talking about our credentials and our accolades and and because we feel like maybe it's bragging. And I often say it's not bragging if you did it, right? If it's true, it's not bragging. You're just flagging. You're bringing attention to facts, right? And so I want you to share a little bit about what do you mostly see as the reasons that a lot of women have a hard time advocating for themselves and what can be done to help change maybe that mindset? Um, I would say definitely the primary thing will be like biases around it. Whereas, you know, if we speak up, it's being seen as negative or as a man were to speak up, they're seen as leadership skills and very assertive. So those biases are just taking a big toll where women know that. We know that Kind of like even you mentioned the title of your book of your friend. I'm not screaming. It's I'm not screaming. I'm just trying to, you know, either we get talked over, we get interrupted and all these things just kind of accumulate. But, and if I wanted to, I mean, and there's just so many things to work around that, but even from another perspective, why we don't advocate for ourselves is also through our upbringing. You know, I'm Hispanic, I'm Latina. So we are told be humble, work hard, um, don't be greedy. And just be grateful. And if you do the work and you work really hard, you know, eventually people will notice. And it, that is not how corporate works. It's mm-hmm. not, and I even have to say, yes, you should be hiring based on the most qualified, 
but the reality is the most qualified isn't doesn't always get the job. There's a lot of people with PhDs and master's degree that are unemployed. It's always who the, the one that best interviews that gets the job. And one yeah. of the great things about interviewing is it's a, we can all learn it. It is not something, it has to be innate. And some of them might be a little bit, but overall it's a learned skill. You're not a great interviewer, work on it or hire someone. But that is something that you can work on. And remember, it is not always about the most qualified because we've all had some of those bosses where we're like, how did they get this job? I'm the mm -hmm. one training them. And how are mm -hmm. they in this role? And that just goes to show you, again, you don't have to be the most qualified in order to get the role. So kind of using that to your advantage to say, you know, I need to advocate for myself. And if I know that my cultural norms are kind of help are impacting the way that I bring myself to the workplace is understand, well, how can I change that shift? Because, you know, even when it comes to negotiation, at least, again, I'm Latina, so I can at least speak for my culture and at least how I upbring that when we go to like the market or, or like a flea market, we negotiate, like that's common. But when it comes to the workplace, it's, oh my God, I can't negotiate. So it's almost bringing that mindset and that culture around it up here's how I'm going to leverage this into the workplace. And again, it's kind of to your point, it's like not being humble, but I'm just going to state the facts. I'm going to make sure that I collect data for my performance, what my outcome and my value has been to the company. And because I know that I don't remember what I did three, four months ago, I know my manager is not going to remember what I did three, four months ago, let alone these past 12 months. So let me make sure that I stay up front to let them know what the value has been. And also it can dictate where I should be shifting my focus when it comes to my work, because I want to go after high impact work. And that's yeah. what the company cares for anyways. High impact work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's important for us to make sure that we are journaling or, or whatever our, our method is of keeping track of all of those successes and wins and milestones, right? Not only so that we can boost our own confidence, right? But also so that we have a reference for if when we are having those conversations with our manager or our leaders um, to really showcase the value that we're bringing to the organization. I think that's really critical. Now, Claudia, as I think about, um, you know, so much has happened over the past 24 to 48 months when we think about the pandemic, when we think about um, all of these social complex issues, um, and, you know, we think about the great resignation, I mean, all, all the things. And if we were to really um, take inventory of each one of those, um, we recognize that women are really at the center of being um, incredibly impacted and not so much in a positive way. And so it has created this groundswell of women supporting women in a way that I think we're like, no, we're all going to make it the norm to say no and to be boundaried where we need to so that we're protecting our peace and so that we're not tolerating things from the workplace. That's, that means that is um, designed to kind of harm us. And so how do you coach women to say no and to create work boundaries? Well, definitely it's understanding where the root is. What do we feel comfortable with boundaries? I know, again, to, for my upbringing, it's we're told, sit, you know, sit down, be quiet. Women are prettier when they're quiet. I mean, that's what we're told as Latinas. So I know that speaking up, even personally, it, it's taking me years um, through it, but where is it coming from? The boundaries and what are those um, that are comfortable in this? What is the assumption behind it? So usually it's, I don't want to speak up because I think that my ideas are going to be laughed at. Okay, well, let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. do, you have, do you tend to have maybe not speak up during meetings when it's a group of people, but then afterwards you talk to that person one-on-one -on -one and tell them, by the way, based on what you told me, here's you know, X, Y, and Z, or here's my input. And if so, if you do that, why not do it in the group space? Because again, how, out of how many times have you done this? Have you been laughed at? Probably never. And you have really great ideas. So let's just change that. So it's really almost making an inventory of what makes you uncomfortable. Why does it make you uncomfortable? What are the assumptions that we're making because of it? And then let's change the narrative. Because a yeah. lot of it is tied to what we believe, what we think, what we fear, and yet it's the unknown. But yet data has proven over and over again. And a lot of my clients, they're very career-driven, they're ambitious. And I asked them, when was the last time that you truly failed? And they're like, actually, never. I did this project. They didn't have any experience, but I was successful. I took on this role and responsibilities and was successful. 
okay, so based on history, it dictates the future. If you haven't failed yet and because you're resourceful and eventually you get to the end result, why don't we lean on that and continue moving that? You are not going to be laughed at. And it could be very important for the discussion to be able to get to a better solution because what tends to happen is we don't speak up and whatever department you may represent, they don't get to, into account because you don't speak up. And then afterwards, you're left with the mess. And had you speaking up, spoken you know, during that meeting, it would have said, well, by the way, we do this. Here are some of those bad things or we need the additional resources in order for this to be successful. So we put ourselves in bad situations because we're not speaking up during those work. Yeah, what you're bringing to the fore for me is just the realization of how many women in particular experience, um, you know, what's been labeled as imposter syndrome. And I say what's been labeled because I, I don't like that, that, that terminology. I feel like um, it's a misdiagnosis, right? And so I don't want us to kind of claim it for ourselves. But a lot of women, they have a hard time creating those boundaries and maybe saying no and speaking up for themselves because maybe they sometimes kind of question, is this imposter syndrome or am I really, you know, delivering upon these things or am I just manufacturing that I perceive people are talking about me or laughing at me, you know? And so I think that's also a part of um, the, 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 the opportunity here is to, to call attention to that so that we can become much more confident and not, um, let perceptions to, you know, create some challenges for us when we really are, 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 you know, very grounded in, in our, our discipline and our work and our craft and, and our, our knowledge and competencies. So you said something in the beginning, and I know this is going to catch the attention of many because, and I do believe this as well, but women should always negotiate their salaries. So let's talk about that. Um, what do you think is hindering women from being able to reach the uh, the compensation packages that are um, rightly due to them, especially when we think about comparison to male counterparts? Is it because of the lack of negotiating skills or the lack of um, willingness to even ask or broach that conversation? What would you say to that, Claudia? I would say most of it is tied to mindset and beliefs. We believe that if we negotiate, they're probably going to pull back the offer or they're going to think we're greedy. Um, the other thing that comes around it is, well, if I get paid more, I'm going to have to work more. And then I, I already, I'm doing a lot of work and I don't want to have to, you know, work 40, 60, well, not 40, but 60, 80 hours a week. Therefore, I'd rather get paid this much. And that way, I, at least I can, I'm not setting myself up for failure. So mm -hmm. those are the beliefs that come around it when it comes to salary negotiation. And it's far from the truth. A lot of the companies are not going to pull back the offer. Now, I'm not saying that this will never happen, but if a company does pull back uh, an offer because you negotiate your salary, thank them and run away as fast as possible. Because what's going to happen when you ask for PTO? Are they going to threaten to fire you? What's going to ask for, God forbid, you have to go on FMLA? Are they going to fire you? What if you go on maternity leave? They're going to fire you? So again, this is just almost like a symptom. It's a red flag and run. And that's a good way to test out if a company is actually, are they toxic? You want to know before you go accept this offer, perhaps even, even leave your current job. So if they do pull back the offer to say, great, now I know this company is very toxic and I just avoided a really bad situation. Yeah. And the other thing is knowing that it's expected. A lot of you know hiring managers, and usually it's HR people that do the negotiation, they expect you to negotiate. It's almost like anticipated. I you know, I, I anticipate they're going to negotiate, but what tends to happen is women most likely don't negotiate. And based on the data, it shows that around 77% of people that negotiate and ask for the raise get it. So if we know that data is almost leaning on our side and we just ask for it, we get it. The other reason why it's important for you to negotiate, especially if you're a woman and a woman of color, we have to ask for it. We know that we're being grossly underpaid. Mm -hmm. And I actually pulled up the stats because it's changed. And like you mentioned, since COVID, the pandemic happening, and since 2020, we've actually been negatively impacted, especially when it comes to our earnings. So mm. um, around like around 80 overall percent, 80 cents of the dollar, women overall get paid in comparison to their white male counterparts. Yeah. When it comes to African-American women, it is 63 cents mm. on the dollar. And when it comes to Latina women, it's 54 cents on the dollar. So the data already tells us we're being underpaid. 
So you're already doing the job and it's not like we're working part-time. It's not like we're working 20 hours and getting paid, you know, half our salary. We're doing the job. So imagine like if you're already doing the job, we know that we tend to get offered on the lower end of that salary range. I like to tell my clients, let's bake that difference in because we're going to ask what the market is paying and not what we're currently making. And that is the other mistake people make, especially women. If I'm making 100000 it would be nice if I make an extra ten, fifteen thousand. 15000 That is not the strategy I use with my clients. Instead, I ask, we actually do market research. What is the market pay for this role? Oh, $180,000? Well, then that's what we're going to be asking for. It's not like you're going to be working you know, more hours than you would have because we all know that we know we have to work harder. We know we have to you know, be smarter. We need to put in more time and effort because we're, we have to do twice as much just to be considered you know, equivalent to our other counterparts. So we already know we're going to be doing the work. Why don't we just get paid for it? It's not like I said, we're not working part-time. It's not like we're working 75%. We're working over 100%. So let's make it sure we get that salary. So understanding that when it comes to salary, it is not based on how much you're making. We are basing it on what is the market paying for that role. That is it. So sometimes it will be double. And most of the time, I mean, a lot of my clients get at least around a fifty to $75,000 salary increase. That's usually the average because we have to make up for how much they've been under earning for years, mm-hmm. plus how much additional they're going to be earning from that advancement in their career. And a really quick analogy that I like to talk about when it comes to salary negotiation is let's just, let's just pretend that you bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars a few years ago. You want to sell it now in this market. I'm willing to offer you $300,000 for your home. Are you going to tell me, no, God, I can't sell it to you for 300,000. I only paid a hundred, hundred thousand. Let me sell it to you for $120,000. It's only fair. Probably mm-hmm. not. You're going to say, yes, I'll sell it to you for $300,000. Sold. The end. Sold. So, again, <laughs> that is the same thing when it comes to salary. doesn't matter how much you're currently making. What matters is what is the job getting paid at this level? That's it. And that's what we're going to go ask for. Yeah. No, you're, you're getting lots of like reactions from this audience that are really picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> so I think that is, that is so awesome. You know, it reminds me, there've been a lot of cities and states, even a few states that have um, gravitated towards a requirement of salary ranges. And I believe that it's certainly intended to help create greater pay equity. Um, so just what are your reflections and your thoughts about that? Do you think that's a good move? Do you think that there's some other considerations that need to be um, you know, brought to the fore in order for that to really materialize into the intent that it it desires. Yeah, I do like the salary transparency, just because I mean, there's been such a huge skew. I mean, for example, one of my clients wasn't even at the whatever the salary range was. She wasn't even at the lower end of it, and her employees. She was a manager, and her direct employees that reported to her were making fifty thousand dollars more than. Again, we want to make sure salary transparency, I like for the fact that at least it gives you a range. Now, where I worry is that some may say, oh my God, it pays that much. I probably should look at another job. I can't, I probably can't perform at that level. Whereas it should be, I've already been performing at the level. And I believe that everything in life can be learned. You know, unless you're trying to be a board certified physician or a lawyer or something, you know, where you need those credentials. Most of the work that a lot of us are doing, we can definitely do. And there's so many transferable skills around it. There are resources. And at least when I used to work in the corporate workspace, I only used to look at job postings that I was at least 30% qualified, 30%. And I looked for the rest where I, is there, do I have transferable skills? Let me do some insights and research. And every single time I got the job with a 30K salary increase and I pivoted industries, And I was still successful because I know how to be successful. I know how to find success. If I don't know how to do something, I'm going to leverage my network, connect with people, really understand what I need to know in the marketplace. What is the low hanging fruit? What is going to make the biggest impact to the business? And then I go and execute. So you don't have to be an expert. You just have to know resourceful and understand your value, your transferable skills. 
and be able to do that and don't discount yourself because the salary seems like too much. That's probably what you should have been paid or you should have been at at this point in your career. Yeah, I love this. I just want to bring to the conversation that our audience tends to be um, pretty pretty broad and that you may have some that are practitioners in the space, some that are HR professionals who are the ones who are guiding and providing some instruction to the hiring managers who are actually having these type of engagement conversations. And then you have some that are, um, you know, looking to be able to um, take advantage of some of the teachings, of course, that you are bringing forth into the universe. And so um, I just wanted to, um, to emphasize that. So I have so many more questions, but we're getting lots of good um, engagement in the chat and I'm seeing some hands raised. And so this is a great time to pivot, to take some of those questions. I want to start with Heidi and then Tracy, I see your hand up. So I will come to you next. And if you're willing to unmute yourself and be spotlighted, um, we will certainly love to have you. But Heidi has a question into the chat and it's this, what is the best way to respond to potential employers who want to know what you are currently making and base their offer on that? rather than the market. Can you say illegal? Isn't that illegal? Yeah, it's illegal. They can't ask yeah. you this question, how much are you currently making? But <laughs> what they do tend to ask, and we tend to give them that power answer is, you know, um, what are you looking to make? And usually what how people respond mm -hmm. to that is, yeah. well, I'm currently making this. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, then we go to the conversation. Instead is one, if they ask you it's illegal, Two, let's just say they're asking, asking you, Heidi, can you tell me how much are you currently making? You respond with, you know, I'd be happy to discuss the compensation range that I'm interested for this role that we're currently discussing. But ideally, I would like to learn about the position before we discuss compensation. But I'm sure we can both come to a number we both agree on. Yeah, and I think the reason that's so important is because, and I'm sure this is maybe the basis of Heidi's question, is so many people, as you've already you know, indicated, Claudia, are grossly underpaid. And so why am I going to give you that number knowing that probably the reason I'm here talking with you is because I realize my worth is much more than what I'm being paid, right? And so yes, first and foremost, though, do not miss that it is illegal for employers to ask that question. So thank you, Heidi. Okay, so Tracy, I see that your hand is raised. I invite you to unmute yourself and share. Sure. And I just want to say to Claudia, I thought I got the memo. It looks like yeah. we're almost <laughs> Quincy's. Um, it's a similar question that I have related to what Heidi asked, but just from a standpoint of the organization as a whole. Like we're seeing as I'm a DEI practitioner and we're seeing some discrepancies in or disparities in what men are uh, earning versus women. How do you engage or do you have a suggestion for how to engage um, employers in the conversation around pay equity so that it doesn't seem like it's gonna blow up in their face? If there, if there has been a pattern, how do they gradually correct it without like just the opening Pandora's box? <laughs> Well, first, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really great question. Well, first, a position should not have like a $100,000 salary range. You know, if you're a manager, it's, oh, you can be, be paid between 100 and 200,000. Why is there such a discrepancy? You know, is it because you want to pay some, you know, people that don't negotiate for themselves or the underrepresented communities? Are we trying to pay them 100,000 when other people were paying 200,000? Why is there such a big discrepancy? Now, I understand that some roles are tied to sales where you know they're driven. Well, then that's when we talk about more about their commission, their OTEs, and there's other things that go around it, but it's really assessing you know, how are you paying in, in comparison to the marketplace? And if so, why is there such a large range when it comes to that? Maybe minimizing that range because then it makes a difference between 10 and $20,000 more versus where I've seen clients is you're being underpaid by 60 to $70,000. Like, why is there such a discrepancy? And the other thing around it is making have clear performance guidelines and really understanding that. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see companies make is they'll give you the three, 8% salary increases when you get promoted. And what that does is a disservice to your loyal employees. That employee that stayed for 10 years, maybe received in their 10 years overall, maybe a seven, eight percent salary increase, where when they go and switch to another company, they can get up to a 60, 70 percent salary increase. So why are you punishing your loyal employees? 
they have a lot of value. They have a lot of knowledge when it comes to the company itself, processes, even networks and how to get things done. And that's why I work with a lot of clients that have been loyal to the company who have been there for eight, 10 years and probably have 15, 20 years of experience, have done really great work, have done really great, received great performance metrics, yet they're being underpaid or they're getting paid less than you know, some of these recent hires and overall they get punished for it. So it really talks about pay equity is really understanding how are you, you know, contributing to your current employees? How are you taking care of them? Do you have those policies of three, 8% salary increases, but yet you're willing to pay someone outside when your employee leaves and pay them fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 more? That doesn't make sense. It's actually a better business practice to pay your employees the level that they deserve because there's a lot of additional costs that come from trying to hire people, trying to onboard them. And it's going to take anywhere between, you know, sometimes three, sometimes nine months for that person to start being able to contribute to the business operations. So that is one of the ways that we can combat of that pay equity is to really understand the ranges, the pay, do an audit to understand how much your employees are getting paid and how is that compared to the marketplace and how are you taking care of your loyal employees? Yeah, thank you so much for the question, Tracy. And while others maybe are percolating on some contributions or questions they would like to bring, um, certainly, you know, put your hand up, use the raised hand feature so that I'll know and I can invite you to unmute yourself and share um, or go to the chat. But I just want to comment also on um, the, the whole pay equity conversation that just took place. And so again, thank you, Tracy. And, and it goes back to Claudia, what you said. It is important for people to not be afraid of the data. Get the information, right? Get the information. Sometimes I will have, um, I, I know of, you know, client partners that have kind of said, well, we know that we haven't done very well in, in the whole pay equity area, almost to say we don't want to collect the data. And what I tell them is that, you know, don't be afraid to collect the data because you are thinking that someone's going to expect you to course correct overnight immediately. That's not always feasible, right? But it's a starting point because at least getting the data, um, the assumption is that you're going to review the data and start making strides, even if it's just incremental steps over time to um to then again help create that that equity that that is needed, and so I, I think that you know your your mentioning of um, doing some type of audit is really important. I am I'm not seeing any hands up right now, so I want to go to another quick question. I am curious from your vantage point, Claudia, with there being such a huge focus right now on um, a distributed workforce, right? These remote work situations where people are being hired in all different geographies. Um, how are you seeing that play a role in your coaching to clients when they are really trying to align with opportunities that, um, especially if they're really interested in remote work position? How, how should companies be thinking about this to make sure that they're aligned with some of the best practices that you're sharing? If the work does not require for the person to be in office, allow them to be remote. I have a lot of clients where they're currently looking to leave their company because they have to go back into the office. And either you know they had a taste of that remote work or they just started realize that now you have to go back into the office. And really what that shows is you want to make sure like even having remote employees increases your talent pool. Now you can hire from anywhere really for that person. It increases your chances of that talent and um, also really being able to understand, uh, you know, want to make sure like for me, if a company that can all the work be done virtual and they decide to bring you in-house and into the office, my question is why? And to me, automatically it's a red flag. Do you want to micromanage me? Is that why you think I'm not performing at the level that I should? Do you need to almost oversee or babysit me to do these performances? Now, my background is in healthcare, I, a hospital setting. I know that you need to have people in the hospital to be able to do your job. Those jobs, I'm not even including them. For those, of course, they should be going in. But for those other roles that maybe your employees have been doing this job for two, three years remotely and you want to bring them in-house, why? And if it's about culture, what did it look like before? What was your yeah. retention rates? How much did you promote people? Were people, um, you know, were they getting promoted? Did you get high scores when it came to employee performance? If so, you didn't have a great culture before. And also business practices, it reduces your operational expenses because now you don't have to pay for offices. But there's yeah. so many things around it. And for me is, and I tell my clients, 
let's be weird when we see a company where specifically for a role that you can do remotely, they're asking to go to in-house. The question is why? And let's make sure this is not a toxic workplace where you're going to be micromanaged. You're going to be questioned on everything that you do. And we don't, I don't want my clients leaving a toxic workplace to another toxic workplace with another 30, 40 K because at the end of the day, it's not about the money. It's about your happiness and feeling fulfilled. So make sure you're not training one bad company for another. So doing that due diligence is really going to be important. Yeah, solid point. I want to stay right there, but I want to uh, I want you to answer that question specifically as it relates to the compensation or the total rewards piece. What should organizations and even employees who are you know seeking um, for another opportunity, what should they have in their consideration set as they're thinking about again trying to align with market value? Because what I, I'm hearing that part of the challenge for a lot of organizations that that operate remotely is that especially knowing that some of them were not remote prior to the pandemic and now they're like they're they're hearing what, what you're saying what you're amplifying is that people really they they do want the remote work experience and so now they're saying well how do we accommodate for that when we have not been accustomed to um the the salaries that may be appropriate for people that are in california versus you know some of the other larger markets um so just talk about what the expectations should be in that regard and how to navigate that well, it definitely is making sure you set up and invest. Now, I know that when lockdown happened, companies had to pivot immediately. Some of them weren't even ready. Like you mentioned, they weren't ready to be remote. And yet those are the companies started feeling behind. They lost how much potential in revenue or potential in sales because they weren't ready to make that pivot. This is where we're going towards, especially now. It is towards the innovative way. So if you cannot keep up, it will impact the potential for sales and revenue, um, having really an attracting great talent. So is it even worth it at that point? And again, there might be another change where we, right now we don't anticipate, but you need to at least know if the work can be done remotely, let's make sure we set up those practices in our workplace because we need to start preparing. And I believe the next thing is gonna be AI. If you haven't incorporated AI in your business, you're already starting to fall behind. So the remote thing should be the last of your list. It should be, yes, if we can do it, let's have them be remote. Let's compensate them for the work that they're doing, not based on where they're living. Because what if they move? So if that's gonna be your case, it's gonna be, okay, well, what if I move to California? Now you're gonna triple my salary. How about you pay me what your budget is and what the market rate is, and leave it at that versus, well, if you work remotely, we're gonna pay you less, but if you work in the, come into the office or in this location, we'll pay you even more, which to me just doesn't make sense. So overall, really understanding that and saying, again, you wanna retain top talent, you wanna attract top talent. And like I said, I've had a lot of employees or clients where they've left. So just because you have your employees right now, a lot of them may already be planning on leaving. And then it, it gets more costly with retention rates and hiring and so on and so forth. So do the right thing. Do it remote. It's great business. It's great for your employees. And now let's focus on how to stay innovative. How do we continue growing our business? And even what is the next step and the next innovation that we're moving towards? Yeah, I know this is really, really, really insightful. What I love that you said is, you know, you know, organizations need to be focused on paying employees for the work that they do, not so much for like where where they live. And I think that sometimes is um, is part of the the expectation set for for employers. I live here in this market. The cost of living here is is this, and so. You know, but I love the way that you couch that is pay for the work, pay for the work um, that they're doing, regardless of geography wise, because you're to your point, anyone can move. That's the beauty of this remote work organization. You literally could be anywhere working remotely. Um, so that's really critical. But well, we are coming up at the top of the hour. I want to give you a chance to kind of touch on maybe some things that you're having a lot of energy and passion for that we did not get a chance to delve into. Um, we want to give you that opportunity. So what, what's coming up for you and what else are you feeling a lot of? Of, um, energy around that you want to socialize with this community yeah so if you're job searching uh, make sure that you are assessing why you're job searching so if you're miserable at work or you're not feeling fulfilled in your role really audit and assess what about is not fulfilling what about it do you not enjoy you don't want to spend a lot of time and resources looking for a job and then a few months later you find yourself in the same situation so that's a really great thing to do when you're starting and you know, moving to this job search. And don't delay on your job search because you think of 
you know, what's happening in the marketplace. I just had a client land a job in five weeks where she thought 90 days would have been too soon. She's like, I don't think that can work for me. I know Connor can help me, but I don't know if I'll be able to get my job in 90 days. And she got it in five weeks and still got a $30,000 salary increase in a new job where she technically didn't have experience with this vendor and it was a remote position. And thankfully, because her mom got sick, so now she can still work and still care for her mom and the other, she's in the West Coast mm-hmm. and her mom's in the East Coast. So definitely, um, and if you really struggle with confidence, you know, that's one of the biggest things I work with as well with my clients. Feel free to reach out to see it would be a good fit to work together. Uh, but definitely you want to make sure you take care of your confidence because it will leak throughout the interview process and your job search process. And either it could either cost you the offer or have you that have you been offered around the lower end of that salary range because you're not coming across as confident and you're not being able to sell yourself. And for those companies that are looking to do like, well, how can we do more work? Definitely create around the professional development. Again, it needs to be a two-part yeah. approach, create systems in the workplace, but also enable your employees to empower themselves and even having them create the leadership talent pipeline, professional development, and really understanding and assessing how you can do better as a company and because that leads to also profitability. I love it. You've shared so much with us today. We're so grateful that you were willing to say yes and accept our invitation. And um, I want to ask my team to place into the chat ways in which folks can um, reach out to you um, if they desire to further, you know, engage. Um, I feel like we probably could have gone on for additional, you know, hours. So, but five um, hours. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it was, it's really great to connect. And I want to thank this community as well for, for coming and being a part of this conversation. If you found this to be valuable and um, you want others to be aware of it, certainly make sure that when the replay comes out that you um, encourage others to take a look at it or to listen to this content um, and from a, on the podcast. And uh, we hope to see you all next Friday. Enjoy your weekend. Be safe. And thanks again so much for being here. Thank you, Claudia. Bye. Thanks, everyone.